Today, our passage is going to teach a very simple lesson, something that we have to remind ourselves of. As simple as it is, we still forget, and it is this, Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. To understand why Jesus came, who Jesus is, we must know first and foremost, Jesus forgives sins. Now, as we seek to be a church that wants to reach a a post-Christian or a de-churched culture, a, 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 a group of people who have learned to live their life without church, the, the words of forgiving and the words of sins are not necessarily familiar. They do not strike with the urgency that, that they should strike. So I want to start with a very, very ground level question. Do we need forgiveness? Do we need forgiveness? Do you believe that you need forgiveness? Many people in our culture do not, and maybe some of you here do not. And yet, I would say that as much as maybe you think forgiveness is, a, is an uh, archaic thought or, or something that you don't need from, from church or from, from a, a God, you still are living in a moral universe. You go through your days with a moral sense of right and wrong. Our our culture is probably as consumed with the question of justice and seeing injustices dealt with as as it's ever been. Whether you are a person who recognizes your need for forgiveness, you recognize that this world needs justice. And if we recognize that the world needs justice, then we are recognizing that the world is full of wrongdoing and injustice. We all use the word ought. We cannot live our lives and conduct ourselves without the word ought. And ought is a word that expects there is a right that we must pursue and a wrong that we must avoid. But here is the crunch. As well as our consciences know the word ought, they also know every single one of us has failed to do the ought we ought to do. And if we have ever failed and ought in our life, we have placed ourselves in the company of injustice. And there's only one thing that can happen when we are in the company of injustice if we do not believe in forgiveness. And that is judgment. The only answer for unjust people, is judgment if we do not believe in forgiveness. One of the songs that haunts me every time I listen to it is the song that that, uh, Johnny Cash sang towards the end of his life called Hurt. You guys heard Hurt? It's a a Nine Inch Nails song, which I'm sure none of you have heard the Nine Inch Nails version, but uh, Johnny Cash... Uh, sings this song as a, a man close to death, and it haunts us because it is a man who is a reflective of what his life has been and what his life has done. And he recognizes 
that he has hurt people. And that the hurt that he has caused is hurt that he cannot take away. I think that that is such a moving song because as we get older, the more aware we are that we have hurt people and we have been hurt by people. And if we recognize that we have contributed to a world of hurt, then do we need forgiveness? Yes, we need forgiveness. Now, the second question, can we be forgiven? Can we be forgiven? This may seem like such an obvious uh, question, and, and, and we all know the answer. We're all in church. We understand it. But, but I want to share a story about can we be forgiven that I think sits close to home, that gets into a fundamental issue that, that many of us struggle with, whether we've been at church our whole life. And it's a story that another pastor shared about a hospital visit that he made to a friend in his church Name's Chuck. So I want to share Chuck's story. Chuck was in the hospital. The doctor had just told him that there was nothing left that could be done for his heart. The end was near. Chuck was a successful businessman and had been involved in many Christian organizations in previous churches. He had served on boards and taught classes. Now he was dying and he was terrified. Chuck carried around a secret that very few people knew. During World War II, he flew bombing missions over Japan, dropping thousands of pounds upon that country. He knew that he had killed hundreds, if not thousands, of people. On his 24th mission, his plane was shot up pretty badly, but he was able to get it back to his base. His co-pilot, however, died. Now, Chuck was eligible to go home after his 25th mission, but he was so angry about the death of his co-pilot that he signed up for another 25 missions, and then yet another 25 missions, so that he could kill more Japanese. And he did. After 76 missions, he finally went back home. Now, 60 years later, the reality of facing God revealed his deepest fear. He would die and be condemned to hell. Chuck had heard me preach the gospel for years, but that day it was obvious that while he thought it was true, it just wasn't true for him. His case was different. See, I think Chuck is a story that more people relate to than we want to admit. I think we are willing to hear the gospel for the person sitting next to us. But when we know our sins, we know what we did. We know the hurt that we've caused. We know the shame of all that we have done. The words of forgiveness in the gospel seem not quite able to cover it. Though you believe in the good news, you just aren't sure that that good news covers you. And so whether you are here wondering, why do we need forgiveness? Or you are here wondering, how could I possibly be forgiven? I want your ears today because the passage that we have from the word today is an answer to both of us. That Jesus forgives sins. 
your sins. He forgives your sins. And we're going to see that through this passage by seeing three aspects of Jesus' forgiveness so that we will see at the end that Jesus does forgive sins, sins that we need forgiven. The first is that Jesus is able to forgive sins. Jesus is able to forgive sins. And and here we look at this first passage about this paralytic man who comes before Jesus. Now, I think it's fascinating to picture yourself in some of these Bible stories. So, So what we are told is that Jesus is teaching in a house, and the people are packing around him. This house is so packed that the door is, is, is crowded. There is no possibility for anyone to get into this room. Standing room only, and it's filled up. And Jesus is there teaching. And then we're told that there's a paralytic man who wants to get in front of Jesus. How is a paralytic man going to get through this crowd? He has four friends, and and what awesome friends these four friends are. They take this man who is incapable of moving even his finger, and they lift him up onto the roof, and they carry him to the center of the room, and then they pull out the thatch and pull out the mud, and they open this hole in the ceiling. Now, can you imagine the people in that room? All of a sudden, dirt and debris and dust is is starting to fall down. And Jesus is probably getting his hair messed up with with specks of dirt. What What is going on? And then we look up, and this man is perilously being dropped on a on a mat right down in front of Jesus. What a picture of wanting to be at the feet of Jesus. And so what does Jesus see first? What is the the thing that Jesus identifies first? He sees their faith. I think it's interesting. It's not his faith. He says he sees their faith. Certainly he includes the paralytic's faith, but he is also including these four men who have gotten up on the roof, dug through, and lowered this man in. He sees their faith and is delighted. Their faith is moving his heart. So again, we have here in the the actions of the people coming to Jesus, a picture of faith, which we talked about last week. We see it again here, that that in, in these actions, there is complete confidence in Jesus' ability to heal. Complete confidence. But also in this this episode, we see a picture of what intercession looks like. Intercession is is the role that these four friends are playing. They are taking their friend who is incapable of coming to Jesus by himself, and they are carrying him and setting him before Jesus. This is the role of intercession, coming between someone who is far from Jesus and by your work, bringing them close to Jesus. 
They do it physically. But the, the, the demonstration that these men give us of intercession is something we have to remember we can always do spiritually. We have talked about being disciple makers, right? We have talked about the need for us to go out to share the good news because the people that are outside are not in and of themselves going to come into church. Well, there is a step of disciple making that goes on even before we go out to them. And it begins with, are you praying for them? Are you being an intercessor? Are you taking names of people that are lost and laying them before Jesus in intercessory prayer? I want us to do that as a church. And so, if you have somebody, scan the QR code, go to prayer request right now, and, and share a name. And then at the end of the service today, in the prayer, we are going to pray for all of the different people that you submit to be interceded for. We are going to begin the ministry of intercession. So if you can scan that card or scan the bulletin, you can go to prayer request, and you can tell me who are we going to be praying for. Let us begin the ministry of intercession together. Now, the second thing that Jesus does, he, he sees their faith, and then he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, that announcement, we have to be honest, is, is, is pretty surprising. That, that, that announcement does not fit the context clues that, uh, that we have as we look at this problem as a, as a, as a viewer, Right? What, what is the reason that these four men and this paralytic is going to all this effort to get in front of Jesus? What, what is the pressing need that is motivating these men? It's that the man wants to be healed, right? And yet, Jesus looks at this man who has no ability to move on this mat being lowered in front of him, and the words that come out of his mouth is, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. So we have two different reactions. We have one, the friends who are saying, wait, we're here for healing. What's this talk about sins? And if we're honest, probably our, our life today, we look at this situation as the greatest need is this man needs to walk. Our, our mind goes towards the physical healing most naturally and most quickly. And so, yeah, we would say, yes, forgiveness is great, but what the man really needs, what is, what is priority, what is urgent, is healing. And so I think we would probably be uh, lined up with, with, with the friends. But then there's a second reaction that happens. There's, there's these uh, men in the back of the room that are called the scribes of the Pharisees, and they hear Jesus' words, and they say, Wait a minute. This man is saying he can forgive sins. No one can forgive sins but God alone. This man is a blasphemer. And so there are these two reactions. Uh, 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 issues of healing should be first, and then this issue of who is Jesus think he is in, in saying these words. So there's a blasphemy issue too. I want to deal with these 
two concerns in, in order because they bring up quite a bit of, of material for us to chew on. The first, let's deal with the, the concern about healing being priority. And we have here, when Jesus says to this paralytic man, your sins are forgiven, we, we have here a, a recognition that Jesus is intersecting the issue of sickness and the issue of sin. Now, this is kind of a controversial thing to talk about, that, but Jesus is recognizing that there is a relationship with sickness and sin. He, he sees that the man is a paralytic, but he deals with the question of sins first. So we have, to, we have to understand how are sins and sickness connected. We have to first of all say that, that they are connected. But we also have to recognize that they are not connected in the way that, that we always think they are connected. So how do, how do we see sins being connected? So Jesus is, is, is saying this man's sins are forgiven, which reminds us, that sin is the source of all brokenness in the world. Ultimately, if we get to the very bottom of what is wrong with the world, the diagnosis of the Bible is sin. And so we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death is the ultimate consequence of sickness. And here, uh, the, the connection between sin and death are tied together. That death has entered the world because sin has entered the world. That we all face the sentence of death because we are all under sin. So we recognize the biblical worldview connects sickness and sin. However... We need to understand that the sickness and the sin are not always a straight line. It is not always straight cause and effect. In fact, most of the time, it is not. It is not always a straight line. So we also must remember what Jesus says in John chapter 9 when he sees the man born blind and his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So here we have a story of a man born blind and a, the, the, the Jewish mindset kind of being woodenly applied to the man. And so the question is, well, where is the sin? Is it, this, is it the blind man or is it the blind man's parents that this man is blind? And Jesus says it is neither. That is not the sin that caused this man's blindness. This man's blindness is so that I can demonstrate the glory of God. So what we have to have when we understand the relationship between sin and sickness in the Scripture is we have to recognize that sin is the ultimate cause of all that is wrong in this world, including sickness and death. But we abuse that truth and misapply that truth if we ever try and be wooden and say cause and effect this person is a paralytic because of sin X, Y, or Z. That is not the way that the economy of, of the moral order and the physical order work. It is just a big fat mess. Okay, We, we can recognize this uh, in, in a modern example. Let, let's take this, the, uh, the sin of drunkenness. All right, 
becoming drunk, becoming lost in your uh, mental capacities through alcohol is clearly a sin in Scripture. And sometimes drunkenness causes direct physical harm to the person who gets drunk, right? They, they, they have liver disease, or they, they have a car accident. And, and in that situation, you can say, well, your drunkenness is the cause of that. We also know that drunkenness has a lot of people. They get hurt. that had nothing to do with the alcohol. There is the drunkenness that, that hurts the kids. There's the drunkenness that hurts the, 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 the job place. There's the drunkenness that hurts the, the innocent person that the drunk driver hit. All of these people had nothing to do with a sin, and yet they suffer because of the sin of that drunkenness, right? So those are examples of sometimes it's direct, but sometimes it's not direct, but in both cases, the sin of drunkenness lies behind that problem, right? So Jesus is is bringing these two together, but he is not bringing them together in a way that we can say this man sinned and therefore he is a paralytic. That is not the way uh, that that Jesus is teaching. So when Jesus talks to the man about forgiveness, he is talking about forgiveness because he is dealing with the root of the man's problem, not just the symptoms. Because the man can be healed of his paralysis But if he is not healed of his sin, he still has the sentence of death. And so Jesus' ministry is not just to make someone well for a day. Jesus' ministry is to make us whole. And so he deals not just with the symptoms, he deals with the core issue, which is our sinfulness. But that brings up the second issue, which is the question of identity. The the scribes look at Jesus And they recognize the significance of his words when Jesus says, I forgive your sins. And they recognize rightly that only God can forgive sins. Sins are only forgivable by God. In fact, if you go to Psalm 51.4, which which, uh, uh, David uh, confesses his sin, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. You see, uh, David is saying in this passage, after he sinned against Bathsheba, after he sinned against Uriah, after he did all these terrible things, that ultimately at the top of the pyramid, he has also sinned against God because he broke God's law. Psalm 51.4 teaches that every sin that we commit may have a human uh, offender, a human victim, but it also always has God as offended. Because every sin is a violation of God's law. And we, we recognize how this works in our, in our own world. So if you were to, um, to have, get a speeding ticket uh, and, uh, and you go to court and your mom comes with you, because your moms are wonderful, and she stands up when the judge is just about to sentence you for speeding and she says, Judge, I forgive my son. Does the judge now say, oh, well, since you've forgiven him, then I have nothing nothing left to do here? No, the law is broken, and the judge has to apply the law. And so when the scribes say only God can forgive sins, they're saying, Jesus, you're not God, right? 
And if you're forgiving sins, you're like that mother standing up saying, I forgive you, but you don't have the authority. You're not in the place to forgive the lawbreaker because only God is in that place. And so if you are saying that, you are committing blasphemy. You are acting as if you are God. And so here we have, once again, this issue of the, the trilemma of who is Jesus coming to the fore. We, we've talked about Jesus' trilemma as we all have to figure out who is Jesus. Either he is a lunatic, his words are full of madness, they cannot be trusted, or he is a liar, he is deceiving, or he is the Lord. He is telling the truth. And so the scribes in this passage are saying, this guy is either crazy or this guy is a liar because only God can forgive sins. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus speaks to the charge. Now, how does he speak to the charge? He, he doesn't do uh, a dispute about the question of whether he is acting in God's place. He doesn't clarify what he did. He doesn't walk back what he did. He doesn't argue at all with the charge. He accepts that, yes, only God can forgive sins. What he does is argue that he has that same authority by coming to them and saying, which is easier? For me to say your sins are forgiven or for me to say to this man, uh, pick up your mat and walk? Jesus is, is making an argument from the, the lesser to the greater. I should say the harder to the lesser, the harder to the lesser, which is to say for his words to, ha to say, I, am, I forgive, there's no way to prove that, right? They're just words. But for his words to say, stand up and walk, well, those words have to have power, right? And so Jesus is saying, if my words have the power to do this, then it stands to reason they also have the power to forgive. There's a whole other level of, 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 of connection here because if Jesus is being a liar or a lunatic, if he is being a sinner and saying, I forgive sins, then Jesus should be under the judgment of God and not have the power to heal the man. Healing is an evidence of his righteousness, his approval before God, right? And so if his words to heal this man, which come after his words of forgiveness, are, are received by God, it testifies to the prior statement, the words forgiveness were true. Does that make sense? Because if, if God said you were blaspheming, we would expect God not to let Jesus' words have the power of healing. But his words, because they have healing, shows that Jesus was not in fact blasphemy. So Jesus says, which is easier? And then the man is healed. Now that's got to be an amazing sight. The man is dropped motionless in front of him, and then he carries the mat that carried him out of the room. Because Jesus says, walk. The paralytic's walking then witnesses to Jesus' authority in the words, I forgive your sins, but it also witnesses to the point that Jesus wants us all to grasp, which is that our forgiveness is always the greatest need. The, 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 when Jesus looked at the paralytic and he saw the two issues, his sickness and his sin, he dealt with the sin first as a way to testify that the sin is a greater harm than the sickness. 
Listen to what Jesus says in, in, in Mark 9.43. He says these words, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. What, what is Jesus saying here? Now, he's obviously using hyperbole. He is not talking about really cutting off hands or anything, but he is trying to make a, a visual contrast. He is saying, if the choice between being healthy or crippled is before you, and you can go into heaven crippled, it is better to go into heaven crippled than to go into hell completely healthy. And so he is saying that crippled is less important ultimately than your sin. So when we talk, when, when Jesus is forgiving this man first, he is stressing that, that the forgiveness of sins is more urgent. So Jesus is able to forgive sins, but better than that, Jesus is willing to forgive sins. In our second section, we, we, we see him go to these tax collectors. He goes to a particular tax collector named Levi. Now, what's the difference between being able versus being willing? I think it's pretty big. Most of us might be able to do something. We might be able to uh, forgive the person who really hurt us. But that's not really the issue. It's willingness, right? Are we willing to forgive the person who has hurt us? So Jesus demonstrates in this first passage, he is able to forgive sins. And, and you know, his, his heartstrings were probably tugged because, you know, this paralytic man... Uh, you, you, you want to show mercy to a paralytic man. But is he really willing? And this really gets into that, that question that we were talking about in the introduction. Is Jesus really a forgiver of my sins? Because I know how awful my sins are. I know how stained I am in conscience. I know how vile I have been in heart and mind. How can I really believe that he is willing to forgive my sins? And that's what the second paragraph teaches us. Jesus comes to this man named Levi and calls him to be a disciple. And the words he uses to call him, follow me, are the exact same words he used for Peter and John and James and Andrew, the fishermen. He doesn't treat uh, Levi any differently than he treats the first four. Except Levi is a lot different than the first four. Levi, we are told, is a tax collector. Now, a tax collector was a horrible position, like a tax collector today. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, no, nobody's ever liked taxes. But in, in, the, in the time of Jesus, taxes were money taken from the Jews who were occupied to give to the Romans who were the occupiers. And the way that tax collectors were found was not they, they, they filed, filled out an application. They bid for the work. They said, yeah, I will, I will take the area of Capernaum, and I will give uh, you 20,000 uh, uh, shekels from the area of Capernaum if you give me the role of tax collector. Somebody else comes along, I can get you 25,000. And they'll give it to the, whoever gives the highest bidder. So the taxes were not set by the empire. The taxes were set by the tax collector. And of course, the tax collector also said, you know, I'm going to get 25000 for Rome, but I'm actually going to bill 35000 so that I end up with $10,000 in my pocket. 
So a tax collector is a person who is, one, working for the enemy, and second, fleecing his own people for profit. This is a vile, deplorable position. And this man, Levi, has made this his profession. He is a gross, deplorable sinner. Why did Levi follow him? When Jesus comes and says, follow me, why do you think Levi came and said, okay, I'm going to leave it all behind and I'm going to follow you? Because we're told immediately he followed him. Who would have to say, follow me to you, for you to just get up immediately and say, that's where I want to go, that's who I want to follow? Imagine if a great person, somebody that you truly revere, a, a, a sports athlete or a celebrity or a world leader called you on their phone and said, I want you to have uh, a day with me. Will you, will you drop everything and come? How, how many of you would say, I'm, I'm making that happen? We, we would make that happen. If Patrick Mahomes said, I want to spend my Tuesday with you, I'm clearing out my Tuesday, right? That's worth it. So when Levi responds to the words, follow me from Jesus, and immediately drops what he's doing, drops his job, drops all of his responsibilities, and follows Jesus, what is being testified to is what Levi thinks of Jesus. He says, the one who has authority to forgive sins has just come and said, follow me. That's the person this deplorable sinner wants to be with. Right? So I think there's a self-examination question, a self-reflection question. Because Jesus gives the words, follow me to every single one of us. And yet if we're honest, our following is at best partial. There is something not being followed in Jesus in our lives, whether it's our, how, how we conduct in our relationships, uh, whether it's, it's the kind of things that we find uh, enjoyable, whether it's the, the thoughts or the words that we use, whether it's the, the way that we conduct ourselves, there is some aspect of our lives where we are not interested in Jesus' lordship. What does that mean? It means that to us in that area, Jesus is not better. Jesus' presence is not better than your sex life. Jesus' presence is not better than your money. Jesus' presence is not better than your gossip. When the words follow me are shut down, for those sins. So who is Jesus? The only way that we're going to be set free from these appealing sins in our life is if we see Jesus the way Levi sees Jesus, has so much greater, so much more beautiful, so much more worthy, so much more delightful of my time and energy and interest than whatever else I'm pursuing. 
Do the words, follow me, have that draw upon you? Now Jesus, next thing he does is that he eats with Levi and with his friends. This is the next thing Jesus does. Now, tax collectors, by, by their profession, don't have the best friends, right? Birds of a feather are going to flock together. And the friends that Levi is with are just categorized as sinners. Ben Witherington, in his commentary, lets us know exactly what it means that Levi is with sinners, uh, he says, sinners is a reference to the notoriously immoral, not merely the ritually negligent. What, who Levi has as friends are not the people who have traffic tickets that aren't being paid for. They're not the people guilty of jaywalking. Okay, The, the, the people that, that Levi is around are going to be the ilk they're going to be the, 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 the really awful people. They're going to be other tax collectors. They're going to be the prostitutes. They're going to be the, the, the drunkards. They're going to be the people that you can see their sin and smell their sin. These are the sinners that Jesus is at table with, having dinner with, enjoying their company Does that picture not jar you? Why is Jesus having dinner with these terrible, bad, deplorable people? They don't deserve it. I mean, they haven't done anything good in their life at all. In fact, they revel in all the wrong things. They don't deserve it. In fact, they are the most undeserving. And so the, the, the Pharisees look at this and they're like, what is going on? We're, we're tithing our mint and our cumin, and you're over here spending your time with tax collectors and sinners. There is something fundamental communicated by having a meal in the first century. It communicates fellowship. It communicates that these people are my people. It communicates oneness. It communicates in his act that Jesus is forgiving these people just like he had forgiven the paralytic. Why is Jesus in their company? The only reason Jesus is there is because he is willing. He is willing to be with the tax collector and the sinner. Jesus offers himself to these people, not according to their merit. He is there entirely by his grace. Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners is a visible, powerful picture that Jesus is willing to forgive the worst. The worst people can be forgiven by Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't come to us by what we deserve. He comes to us according to his grace. Can you see yourself in this room? Can you see yourself with Jesus having a meal with you, knowing that he knows you? He knows what you've done. 
He knows what you have not done. And yet he comes in this scene to say, I receive sinners. Whatever sin, however sinful, I will sit with you. I will offer my forgiveness. I am willing. But third, Jesus is able to forgive sins. Jesus is willing to forgive sins. But third, and perhaps most critically, Jesus is needed to forgive our sins. Let's let's be honest. I'm not going to ask you to speak. I'm just going to let your hearts do this. How do we feel about Jesus forgiving anyone? How do we really feel about Jesus forgiving anyone? I mean, there is a part of he's forgiving tax collectors and sinners that makes part of us say, well, what then is the purpose of doing all the right stuff that I'm doing with my life? What is is the purpose of obeying God's law and not enjoying all of these sins and not doing the deplorable thing if Jesus just forgives anyone? There is a, 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 if we really understand grace, there is a part of it that outrages us. If you are not outraged by how gracious God's grace is, I don't know if you understand how gracious God's grace is. The worst people you can think of can be forgiven. Because it is grace that welcomes them in. Jesus is giving heaven to bad people. That's what this passage is. What does Jesus say in response when the the Pharisees say, how dare you eat with tax collectors and sinners? He says these powerful words in in, in verse 17, the conclusion of our passage. He says uh, right here, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus is saying that like the doctor spends his time amongst the sick to heal him, Jesus spends his time with the sinners to save them. The doctor is needed by the sick. Jesus is needed by the Savior. Jesus is the only hope for sinners. Now, when we look at this verse, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, we have to recognize the power of the word right here. Are we reading the word or is the word reading us? Because when you hear the words, I came not to call the righteous but sinners, which box do you put yourself in? When I hear the words righteous and I hear the words sinners, put me in the box with the righteous. We don't naturally put ourselves in the box of the sinner. We all want to fundamentally believe we're okay, that we're good, that we're certainly not as bad as most people. Are you the righteous or the sinner? That is the question that erupts from this parable. Well, how do you judge? 
How do you judge whether you are the righteous or the sinner? Whether you need Jesus' forgiveness or you don't need Jesus' forgiveness? How, how do you decide? Every single one of us are building our lives by comparison. We are wearing what we wear. We are doing what we do. We are participating what we participate because we are comparing ourselves to our peers and making sure that we're in the better 49%. And if that is the way that we look at the life and we have a lot of, 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 of do-goodness in us, then we have a strong sense that we're the good people. We're the values voters, right? But Jesus doesn't say that's the standard. You don't go into the hospital and compare who's the least sick. Everyone's sick. What you compare is true health. Look back at verse 8. When the, when the scribes said this man is blaspheming, they didn't say that out loud. That was just their thoughts. If we recognize that the one who will judge us knows our thoughts, not just our actions, which box do you think you are in? Are you still in the righteous or are you amongst the sinners? Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we recognize that in our heart, then we must recognize that Jesus is needed for our forgiveness. And how great is our need. When, 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 the, when Jesus said to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, I want you to recognize this. Those are not just words that Jesus spoke, which is easier to say the words, your sins are forgiven, or to say, pick up your mat and walk. I want you to know that in reality, the harder words were, your sins are forgiven. Because in saying your sins are forgiven, Jesus at that moment said, your sins will be charged to me. I will be sentenced with your sins. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, he committed himself to die on the cross for that man. First Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. The reason that we are forgiven is because Jesus died for our sins. They were paid for. So let us go back to Chuck. Let's hear how the story of Chuck finished. The pastor says, I sat silent and tried to imagine the weight of his guilt and then, son, then said, Chuck, you are a big sinner. But Jesus is a bigger Savior than you are a sinner. Chuck responded like he had been hit by lightning. He looked at me like he had heard this for the very first time. His eyes got big, his face was animated, and he said, that's it. Jesus is a bigger Savior than I am a sinner. Chuck died two weeks later. The joy of his life in those last two weeks made it evident to everyone who visited him that his chains were broken, his heart was free. 
Beloved, this is the gospel. The gospel saves because Jesus is a bigger savior than you are a sinner. Jesus is able to forgive sins. Jesus is willing to forgive sins. Jesus is needed to forgive sins. And he does forgive sins. Timothy Keller, who passed away on Friday and knows how perfectly forgiven his sins are, summarizes the gospel this way. The gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. How do we receive this gospel? We do what Levi did. He left his booth and followed him. He left his booth and followed him. What do you need to leave on the words, follow me? Friend, follow Jesus and rejoice in the good news that your sins, every single one of them, every deplorable thing in you has been forgiven. They have been paid for. And he has come to make you whole. Amen.